0: Thank you. everybody welcome back to another episode of the balanced blues brothers podcast today it's me travis flock and i am here joined by our special guest the score and we are here to break down the everton match review so a few days late now after this has come out but you know international break figured why not give us a little bit more time to think and reflect upon what we saw and i think that from the everton match review there's a lot that could be exemplified in that match as far as really the club itself and where we are and where we're heading and where we've been and kind of how that interacts and in, with fan expectations, the discussion around Potter and the discussion around the club itself. Um, so score, if you want, go ahead and let everybody know, you know, where they can find you and where they can check out some of your content and articles.
1: Yeah. Uh, I am the score. Uh, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I'm um, at the score zero one. You'll have to request to follow me because I'm private. Um, but I do check my requests, so um, do you follow me? I write for the Chelsea Social. I've got a few articles up on there, and a couple recently as well. Uh, and I've also written for a Sign Down Talk Chelsea as well, done a few things for them. And I've been on their podcast, So uh, and I've been on the Chelsea Social podcast too. So yeah, um, do you go and check all those things out, and uh, I'm honored to be here.
0: Yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on. And, you know, we've talked a lot behind the scenes and of, of this podcast. And, you know, I think we both have pretty, I, I don't, I, I think we do have both very similar outlooks on things in many ways. So really excited to have this discussion with you. I know we've kind of been loosely planning it and did some stuff together on the Chelsea social podcast. I think that was after the West Ham match, if I remember right, or the full, it was, it was one yeah. of those matches that didn't go right for us. Cause I know it was like a like a crisis, you know, or well, quote unquote crisis time for the club, but uh yeah, so you know, coming back on this episode, we're looking at Everton match. I, I mean, when I was watching it, I guess the first thing to think is I didn't feel that we were really outplayed by Everton. I didn't think that they were a far better team, or I really didn't even think they were equal to us. Um, I thought that we were in control most of the match. I thought we looked pretty dangerous. I think, you know, early on, like Jao Felix. Once again, he has a lot to offer. It's just that final end product is a bit lacking from here and there. You know, I know he got the goal, but still, I I just think, you know, we can think of how many times he's hit the woodwork and other matches. It just feels like sometimes there's a bit of an end product issue. But again, with us getting two goals in this match, you know, we had a little bit more end product. And surprisingly, it was the defensive aspects that let us down, which tended to be our strongest point this entire season. I think we still have a top five Premier League defense this season. And, you know, it was kind of a reversal of fortunes, but with it being a Sean Sean Deitch team, I think everybody knew how difficult this was going to be, or at least I did not expect an easy match. I expected an ugly, ugly 1-0 win, and, you know, it ended up being an uglier match and didn't get the win, had to get settled for the draw, and we can talk a bit about that. But, you know, I'll pass it over to you in a second, but I, I just feel like, we weren't really second best on that day. It wasn't that we were lucky to have a draw. I think that Everton were lucky to have the draw. And I think that as an overall team level to analyze this match, I think that we played very well, but I think that a couple of individual mistakes ultimately cost us, namely the cool Bali just implosion at the end. And then Keppa. you know, this is something that I get frustrated with some of my goalkeepers with that I coach in high school level is when they, you know if you're going to dive down to the ground you don't chop with your hat or hack with your arm you you kind of just let it gracefully slide out and extend right so you're pushing the ball wide because then that means your arm gets down quickly and then it's moving across in a horizontal position on the ground but when I rewatch that with Keppa, he, he, ch- he chopped at the ball when he dove down he chopped he didn't he didn't dive and extend and that that's a mechanical error on Keppa. that's a that's simply put is I mean that's a that's a fundamental error um and it should have been saved. I'm going to be honest. That Sims shot should have been saved. And But again, like that was late, late in the game, 89th minute. Big players have to step up to those moments and make those make those stops. And even even when Kouwabaly cool got beat so badly, kept us in a really bad spot. But I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but I still feel at the end of the day, in that instance, if his mechanics were a bit better, if his technique was more in line with a traditional technique, we probably still get three points in that match, but so that's kind of, I'll, I'll stop there. What were some of your thoughts from the match?
1: Well, I kind of agree with you. Uh, I think first half, you know, we played, I thought we played well, Thought we had some good possession. We created some chances. Um, Enzo Fernandez was like spraying the ball about like he's, he's been brilliant since he's come in. Um, you know, and even at the start of the second half as well, we, we played pretty well. Um, I don't I, I don't think Everton remotely outplayed us. I think we were the better side over the 90 minutes. Um, I think, and you're right about the, the two goals. The two goals were, were essentially individual errors, which, you know, if we'd had, say if we'd had Peter Cech in goal, for example, we'd probably win that game 2-0, right? So, um, even with the mistakes that Bar made, you know. Um, I do think there was one other thing as well that I noticed. Um, Wesley Fafana got injured near the end, just before their second goal. And he came had to come off, and Trevor Chaloba came on. And, you know, he's not played for a while. And it was an unexpected change. And I think that uh, that might have caused a bit of confusion in the defence. Um intended communication. um it could have been that could have that could have affected things um but you know it was it was like you say it was it was mistakes um individual mistakes um on the balance of play i think like a a win by one goal would have been would have been a fair result i think um and you're right about felix i think he kind of grew into the game um the talent is clearly there with with felix uh, it, there's no doubt about it. Uh, he's He's got so much of natural ability. Um, but you're right, the, the end product, it still isn't there yet, as much as it should be. Uh, I hope that maybe getting a a proper number nine next season might help with that. Um, and obviously in Klunk is coming in as well next season uh, in the attack. So, yeah, maybe a defensive midfielder will probably add to the balance of the team as well. So, yeah, um, but I was disappointed not to win. Uh, I thought we, I thought a win, I I wouldn't have been, I think a a close win would have been fair. Everton, Everton had a few chances, but like you say, Sean Dice teams are always difficult to play against. They're always well organised. They're always up for it. Um, Dyche is a good manager.
0: Oh, he's. I um, love, I love Dice like as a manager. I actually really, really yeah, enjoy him as who he is, what he thinks yeah, of, how he manages teams. I, his yeah. whole philosophy, I, I'm a big fan of him myself.
1: Yeah, 100%. I, yeah, he, he, he gets a lot of criticism and banter and stuff, but he's actually, I think he's actually a really good coach. Um, good mentality as well. You know, he, you know, he knows how to assess a player and a player's mentality, um, and organize a team. And it was always going to be a difficult game. You know, people have said, we drew with the team in, in the relegation zone. I'm like, that's not the whole story. <laughs> you know, this is a Sean Dyche team, and there's some decent players in this team. Not, It's not like a completely useless team. Um, so they're going to be well-organized and difficult to play against, right? So uh, they always are. You know, when we used to play Burnley, they were always a difficult team to break down. So,
0: Oh, uh, they were so, – I, I hated it. Playing Burnley whenever yeah. Daisha used manage them. I mean, yeah. every time I'm like, on paper, this is an easy match, but I- I've seen this guy set up enough times to not be that naive.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so so I'm with you really on the game. I I was frustrated that we didn't win, um, but I you know I I knew what was going to end up happening in terms of the uh, Twitter response, uh, and I didn't even bother reading it. And I block a lot. I block enough people to not. Not be able to see it anyway but you know it was like and i was kind of like i I was a bit confused by it because although not surprised because i was because i thought we played well and we deserved to win um and people are acting like we like we played badly and we just scraped to draw you know um which would have been a different story you know um and like all the people who were wanting potter out a few weeks ago are suddenly Finding their voices again, and I'm like, and it was confusing to me because I, I thought we, I thought we played well. We'd scored two goals, which we weren't doing a few weeks ago. We weren't scoring goals at all. Uh, you know, we yep. scored eight goals in four games. We're averaging two goals a game at the moment. So, um, I think we were averaging less than one a game a few weeks ago. So, yep. um, you know, uh, there is improvement that has been there in the last four games. Um, You know, we beat a very good Dortmund team who were on a 10-match winning spree, who were joint top of the Bundesliga, level with Bayern on points. Um, And that, and we played well over 90 minutes against them as well. Uh, So, you know, there's been improvement. Um, It's a setback, you know, we made a couple of mistakes, cost us the win, but it's only a minor setback. I don't think it's going to set us back I don't think I didn't see heads like all go down and suddenly everyone lose confidence. I just saw players being a bit frustrated which is understandable. Um and I'm sure that we'll come back. Um you know with a win next game, you know next game won't be easy either it's Aston Villa at home and they're well set up under Emery so that won't be an easy game but um you know I'm more confident now that we can put a run
0: together. I think you know kind of the comment you're making about how the issue at first was, you know, we, we weren't scoring goals. And you probably heard the classic uh, lines that people were saying that, you know, we scored like one goal in 2023. And we had to hear that for like two months or something like that. And I think ultimately, you know, we started to turn that corner against Dortmund and then it took a hard nosedive. And then it looks like from there, we really got against, I think what was it Spurs was kind of the, the lowest moment, probably actually, I think Southampton was a lower moment mm-hmm. overall. Yeah. Um, myself personally, that was I, I was like Spurs, yeah, that's a pretty solid team, Southampton, no. But you know, I, I think that when I was watching that, I felt like the the team can play and play and play and we're never gonna score goals. And but we're very solid defensively. And I think that now we really have started to turn that corner offensively. It looks like that we're starting to move in towards a more consistent attack, and like what you were saying, certain average two goals a match over the last several. And contrast that to previously, where we could barely score, but we could keep a good defense. And now we've, for the most part, have kept a good defense up until Everton, and now we're adding the goals. So, I and and right, we're also now missing Silva, which is a big blow, um, which makes a big difference. Maybe that's why we're conceding some of these later goals, um, specifically in this Everton match. I think when you had have somebody of Silva's quality out there, uh, compared to, and not to say anything badly against Kual but I just don't think he is adapted uh as well to the Premier League as we would have thought. And I don't think really think that his skill sets at his age are really all that productive to the Premier League. Somehow Thiago Silva has been able to do it and koulibaly has not been able to do it as well. So I think that's like one thing to consider here is that yeah it, there are negatives, right? We we absolutely drop points in this match. And and it has to feel that way, I think to most fans. Like if you're a listener and you feel that we were second best on the day I, I would disagree with that. I don't think that we were second best. I think we were much more the better team in that. Specifically in the first half, I think that it just was a a, a constant barrage of a, of an attack. Just couldn't really break a whole lot from it. We had some offsides goals. We have this and that. It just doesn't go our way um, all of the time. But the fact that we're starting to turn the corner offensively, yet we're going to get Silva back. We still have a pretty solid defensive base. You know, Kepa is – You know, his own thing. He's had some great moments, but he's had some bad blunders. That's just, I think, who you have to grow to accept. So I I think that's a good point as far as where we're heading. I don't think this match is one that I end up watching and at the end of it think that we're turning the corner for the worse. I think that I watched this match and thought, well, you know, we're, we're starting to show more signs. It just didn't click for us. And we had a lot of people make a lot about the substitutions that were made um by Potter and how they were very negative and how a team you know it's a Brighton type substitutions to see out a result and I'll get your thoughts on this score because when I heard that you know I even asked people what is the behavior of a Brighton manager you know what is the behavior of a Brighton manager compared to a Chelsea manager because you're saying that a Brighton manager puts defensive players on to see out a win but a Chelsea manager does not do that and not to be, not to be like just to call people out or anything, but if you think that, and you not watched this club for the last twenty years? I, you know, I mean, look at the managers oh, uh, that we've had and employed, and so that, I, me,
1: I, that makes me laugh so hard because cause... Mourinho, Jose Mourinho used to bring on John Oviy McEl to see out games all, all the time. Uh, oh, yeah.
0: The McEl role, it was, it was its own he thing. Was the
1: guy that. That brought on people to to protect the lead, like it, like Jose Mourinho did that. He was a master of it. Um, that's 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 often how we won. We won a lot of one nils under Mourinho. You yeah. uh, know that that was kind of what we did. You know, uh, so it's uh, it, it's a completely Chelsea thing to do. Um, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, you, could, you can't get more Chelsea than that, really. Like uh, even Conte did that as well at times. So yes. You know, it's uh, <laughs> that was a bizarre statement. It really was. Like I, I, I didn't quite understand it. And what was what I also noted is that he made the same substitutions against ever against uh, Leicester away. He yep, Conor Gallagher one against Leicester in the second half.
0: And um, Connor's been doing great in that role, and everybody yeah, was saying we, that
1: he came on and we played better in the second half. We created more chances and we actually scored a goal. Um. In the second half after he came on so we played we actually played better when he came on against leicester um the same substitution and made earlier in the game as well because he was made at half time against leicester um yeah. so to suddenly say that this is costing us the game it was it was very very bizarre like i i didn't make any sense to me like um you know and yeah, he was trying to protect the lead. You know, we haven't won many games recently. You know, you want to, you want to try. He was getting to like the last half hour of the game, twenty minutes of the game, whatever. Um, they were going to go for it. So, yeah, flood the midfield so that they can't get past us. It makes sense, and then yeah. we can hit them on the counter attack. Um, yeah. That's exactly what. I mean, that's exactly what Mourinho used to do. He used to like you
0: know, quite exactly. To it it's what Conte stuff. did every time.
1: And then Chelsea would get a pro sometimes get a late go on the counter, you know. Um, it's that's classic Mourinho. You can't get any more Chelsea than that. Um, so yeah, very bizarre. Um, but I didn't I don't think it was the wrong substitution. I just think that um it just didn't work this time. You know, it was uh, and I think again the Fofana thing didn't help because it just unsettled the defense a bit towards the end as well. Um yeah, and that was really that was an injury related substitution. So, if he'd stayed on the pitch, I don't know whether we conceded the second goal. We might still have done, but there's a chance we might not have done. Um, so, yeah, it was that was a strange thing, and that that wasn't the reason we drew the game, as far as I'm concerned. Other people can disagree with me, but I I I don't think that's the reason we drew the game.
0: Yeah, I I, and I agree with you. I don't think that we drew the game because of the subs, and I and I think that you're spot on there that the way in which we made those substitutes was classic Chelsea. And the comments really rang, uh, I mean, really bored on comedy for me when I was reading those comments. Cause I was like, all of the best manager, oh, okay, Carlo aside, but uh, all of the best managers that I can think of in our, in our time. I, I mean, I would put Conte on the same level as Thomas Tuchel because at the end mm-hmm. of the day, I mean, yeah, this is the champions league is bigger than the premier league in terms of, I think of how most fans think of important trophies. But, again, to win the Champions League when you take over and you're in the round of 16, you know, granted you're playing very good competition. I get all that. I get that. But I think that the changes Conte made in a 38-game season and basically revolutionized English football, even got Pep Guardiola playing a back three, had most of the Premier League playing a back three at one point. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that I would put, you know, him above Tuchel, and yep. when you look at those two influences between Mourinho and Conte, that's how both of them played. Very, we're gonna we can sit back on the counter all day because we'll beat you on it. We know we'll, we'll sit back and be defensive because we'll spring on the counter and beat you so fast you won't even know what happened. You know, I can think of like the Hazard goal at Man City in 2016 that really yep. exemplifies that.
1: Yeah, that was a, that, I mean, that was a that that was a con. That was the perfect Conte game. Like it's a. Oh. You know, we kind of soaked up, we soaked up Manchester City's possession and we hit them at pace on the counter. You know, William, Hazard, you know, uh, even the Costa gun to a certain extent. You know, it was, that was exciting football. Yeah, but
0: it was defensive.
1: defensive It wasn't wasn't possession-based football, but it was still enjoyable attacking football as far as I'm concerned.
0: Oh, it was Mm – yeah, the Conte days I thought were just electric from – even despite the style that we played, just an electric type of manager and squad that we had that 16-17 season. And, yeah, I I think that just to kind of exemplify, you know, what you're saying with that match, you're right. I think that was the perfect Conte match. And if anybody watches that and thinks that, you know, know, he's A, not an elite manager, and B, we were not an elite team um, playing defensively, then I just think that's a lot of revisionism history because Mm – you don't have to play a possession-based style where, you know, the other team has two shots and barely touches the ball to have a dominating performance. You can soak up pressure. If they're not getting chances and you're soaking that pressure up and you're hitting them on the counter, isn't that, that, that that's effective football, right? That's more effective than just passing the ball around sterilely. So, yeah, I, I found that, I found those suggestions from certain fans to be very far of the mark because a lot of our best years were built on playing that style um yeah yep. just a very odd commentary from some folks
1: yeah i agree absolutely um yeah very uh yeah very very strange i didn't quite understand it to be honest. um but yeah you're right i agree
0: yeah those were some very strange ana- forms of analysis in terms of critiquing potter subs i i completely agree with you on that it's just been a I feel like that's an example of something that we used to do all the time and would have been celebrated normally, right? If we had Antonio Conte, if we had Jose Mourinho, and we had one of them doing exactly what Potter tried to do, and it didn't work, right? I can think of Joe, when Jose did it, uh, Sunderland 2-2 match in his 2013-2014 season, um, gave up a late PK and lost to Sunderland. I think the same happened to West Brom as well in that same season. So, We used to do this, and the same thing used to happen, and we used to never criticize the manager's choices for trying to see how to win, but now it's Graham Potter, and we are criticizing him for that. Well, I don't want to say we, me and you are, but the wider discussion I thought that I saw over the weekend after the the result was criticizing Graham Potter yet again. He's not serious, this and that, it's Brighton, it's not Chelsea, blah, 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 so on and so forth, all the negativity, and I think that you probably will find this interesting as well, but... You know, we didn't really see the, any of the discussion about Grand Potter being competent while we, were, while we were winning, yet we saw all the discussion about him not being competent at the first draw after three wins in a row. So I think that where we can go with this now from the Everton match is that there's a lot that can be dissected from how fans reacted post-Everton.
1: Mm. and.
0: How that might like really look at, you know, Potter's situation. And it just seems to me that Potter's situation right now, and I think it was Simon Johnson that said this on one of the athletics podcasts straight out of Cobham. It was either him or it was Matt Wall. It was one or the other. Um, and Matt Wall was on London is on one in his blue. And what I remember them saying was that they had this fear that even if we got on a run of matches where we start winning at the first sign of bad results all of the old wounds were going to open back up and it would be the exact same place with just a different time that we were previously in when we were in that bad run of form and not scoring, scoring any goals and not really getting any of the three points that we needed. So, you know, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that. Do you think that, do you think this is just emblematic right now of where the fan base is and how they're going to view Potter and really without winning a trophy how does he win these guys over? How does he how does he get a fan base to not question his competence after every time he drops a point? Because to me I don't know how he does that. I think a lot of the damage has been done in that regard. Mm. And not saying that I agree, but I think the damage as far as how fans look at him has already been done and this is going to be yeah. a launching point for I think a lot of what we're going to discuss the rest of this episode.
1: Yes, I think it is. Uh, and yeah, and the thing is, I, I kind of expected it as well. Um, I did too. I did too. The first, uh, I knew that, I mean, he didn't get much credit for, um, the wins, which no. is unfair because you can I mean, to me, you can't criticize him for points dropped if you're not going to praise him when we do well. You can't, it's, it, you can't, you can't kind of, you, know, you can't have
0: yeah, your
1: cake and eat it too. Yeah, exactly. That's it. You can't, you can't, you've got to, it's one or the other. Either he is responsible for our good performances and our bad ones, or he's not responsible for either. Right. And, uh, I mean, I even saw people, I think, I saw some people come out and say, "Ah, oh, well, Thomas Tuchel used the back three first at Chelsea, like when we won. I think it's when we beat, when we beat Dortmund. And that was a great performance, right? We played really well. Potter got it absolutely spot on. It was, you know, the team was together. The team was clearly behind him. I don't think there's any doubts about that the, that the players are 100% behind him. Because if they weren't, they would have just down tools for those games and got Potter sacked. Exactly. Um, but they didn't. They actually played better in one of their best performances of the season. And the celebrations at the end were very clearly the body language and even after... Leicester as well, were that, you know what, the players are all together, the players are behind Graham Potter, the players want Potter to succeed, we are supporting him, um, we're behind him, we're determined to make this work, you know, and I was really, I was really proud after that Leicester win, you know, all the, all the players came over to the Chelsea fans and threw their shirts into the crowd, Graham Potter came over as well, you know, it was like, it felt really positive, like, yeah. and... I felt really like this is different. I haven't seen this from Chelsea for years, really. I haven't seen a Chelsea squad be this together, um, and this
0: and you know, they're this together despite M8. the fact they're they're 33 three team players and they're still this together. That yeah, speaks volumes to me.
1: I think what I what I what I've concluded from that is that Graham Potter is an absolute elite man manager. Like, there's I don't think there's any question of that for me. What, you can think of what you like about his coaching and his tactics, but in terms of man management, I think he's he's right up there. Um, he's clearly got the respect of the players. They clearly want to play for him. They clearly believe in him. Um, and, you know, I haven't seen any of the kind of downing tools that I've seen under under other managers. It's been the complete opposite, right? So, um, but, you know, we, we kind of draw a game and... Graham Potter is, is just like routinely blamed. It, it, there's so many double standards which come out. And and I see, I see Franz talking about, um, you know, oh, he said, because he says the boys gave everything all the time, that somehow that's not authentic or that somehow it's.
0: Or like it's, his philosophical stuff enough, about this is, is life it. or that's life, which is yeah not well, true.
1: Like, lot, I mean, like, I, loads of managers say, like, the players gave everything, the lads gave everything, like, you know, the team gave everything, like, a variant of that. Yeah. That's not a Graham Potter unique comment, right? Well, um, and the
0: flip side, too, is what if, if he goes in the press conference and he just lambasts all the players, Yeah, what effect, what is you think that's going to keep them all together and behind him and, and not create f- fractions within the 33-man squad?
1: Exactly, right? It's... You know, um, maybe it's because he's English and he's got a Birmingham accent. You know, it's not a you know exotic accent that he was the way he says it. But like, I don't, I don't know. But there's like, there's there's nothing. That's not a reason to want Graham Potter to leave Chelsea.
0: No, I and I know that you're right about the English manager stuff. I mean, it, it, as I you know, even as an outsider, sense. as from America, I see all the time that there's this, there's there just always seems to be this prevailing sense that English managers man, they just, like, they're not, like, they're just not great. I don't know what it is. And granted, I understand when the Premier League's not being won by English managers, I can understand how somebody would arrive to that conclusion, but I just feel like that, if that's why somebody's not liking him, was like, well, he's English and English managers don't do well um, over X amount of time, I just think that, well, how many opportunities, you know, how many times have we seen English managers other than Frank Lompard at one of the, like, the top six clubs? It's just It's just not been very frequent. Um, you know,
1: the, the, an you know, English manager has not won the Premier League
0: yes. ex- there you go no. exactly
1: um, uh, you know
0: <laughs> which, <laughs> which says bad. both <laughs> it says two things at the same time that maybe there hasn't been the opportunity as well as there ha- the ones that have had the opportunity haven't succeeded but I think yeah. getting to your point that the fact that he is an English manager right I think that people and he's I think the biggest thing for him is that he's, un, he's oh god I hate this phrase but he's he's completely unproven you know he's never managed a top club but like my contest my my contest to that was Pep Guardiola never managed a top club until the day he was hired and then he did you know so many of these top managers they aren't top managers that manage top clubs until all of a sudden they get the appointment to manage a top club and then they become good
1: well I mean great I mean what Pep Guardiola had managed Barcelona B so he'd managed in like the second division or something.
0: Like yeah, it was, it's, was basically yeah. what
1: he had done, and we'll he won the too. second division, and that's that. That was that was his CV in coaching, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's basically like somebody who won the championship getting given the Man City job, right? Yes. So, yes, um, which you know <laughs> would be like Potter had, had has done more than that. So, <laughs> yes, he um, has. You know, I mean, Grand Potter, I mean, Grand Potter's CV, he, he's, he got, he got Osterton's promoted three seasons in a row, I think. He then won the cup with Osterton's. Um, and then he got them to the Europa League knockout stages.
0: Which for a club of that stature, I don't think people realize how amazing that. that is.
1: Yeah, that, that is, that's like, I can't think of an equivalent, you know. Um, it, I suppose it's, I suppose it's like a team getting promoted with almost no money, it's like Norwich getting promoted, getting into the Europa League, and then getting to the knockout stage of the Europa League without barely spending any money. Like, yep. um, that's the and, nearest point and- I can find. Like A team basically doesn't spend any money, and has no money, and you know winning a trophy and then getting to, and then he beat Arsenal at the Emirates with Ostersunds. Like, yep. you know, like that, that is an incredible achievement in itself. I mean, they lost the tie, but to beat Arsenal at the Emirates, you know that's not i mean even after went went what they are now at the time they were still a still a european level side you know if you gave if,
0: if you gave ostersen pep guardiola that same ostersen side did they beat did they beat arsenal at the emirates i mean I, I i hate to use that example but i always hear about how you know he's not a good manager but when you look at where he's managed you could put most top managers in those situations and did they do a whole lot better than he did i'm not so sure
1: yeah exactly and you know, and then, of course, it, Swansea, really good season there. The fans loved him. The fans didn't want him to leave. Brighton, um, you know, I think, I, I mean, it. he took a side that was fourth from bottom, was playing direct football, pragmatic football, had no players suited to his style of football, basically had to build an entire team on a budget and implement a philosophy and build a structure of a football club and all of that, um, and he did that, and he beat, again, he beat, I think he beat Manchester United at Old Trafford twice, including this season, he beat Manchester City, he beat um, Spurs several times, Arsenal several times, he, uh, he even he grew with Chelsea twice and probably deserved to win at least one of those games against Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea, you know, and they were fourth in the Premier League when, when he left. Um, and they were there on merit. You know, they, um, they go, the goals per game ratio under Graham Potter this season is actually a little bit higher than Brighton under Graham Deserby this season, ironically enough. Um, they, they scored 11 goals in six games this season under Potter. And they've scored 20, I think it's 34 goals in, nine, in, uh, in 19 games under Deserby in the Premier League. So... He was making progress there. They were a good side, like, and I was saying to people on Twitter today, like, I remember watching that. I think it was, I think it was the Man United game this season and the Leicester game, and they won five two, which was Potter's last game at, at Brighton. And I remember like seeing Chelsea Twitter when those games were on, and everyone just like half of Chelsea Twitter were like waxing lyrical about Graham Potter and Potterball, and like, can we can we play like this, please? You know. Like I love watching them. This is great. Like, you know, some people were saying Grin- bring Grand Potter to Chelsea. You know, it was. Um, I remember it. You know, and some of these people, are the people that are now criticising him. Um, it's as if almost that they thought he'd come to Chelsea and magically turn us into Brighton in about a week. You know, or something like that, or six months. <laughs> you know, it's just like, like, do you, do you know how coaching works? Like, you know, he didn't even have a free midweek until after Christmas, I don't think. Like um till like, I think Jan was it January? I think the first time you had a had a whole week to, to work with the players. Well, I could be wrong, it might be one but be one week before that. But um you know it was it's like you know you can't implement a new philosophy in that situation with players that maybe aren't are suited to it and when you need to rebuild the entire squad. Right. Yeah, and it- you have twelve players out injured and then another eight players coming into the squad in January, like, and you have all of these philosophy in that situation. (laughs) Like you only would struggle to do that. Like people,
0: man. So this is kind of a bigger thing. Like people always talk about Graham Potter. He had all of his time. He's been here, you know, eight, seven, eight months, blah, 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 blah. But you're hitting upon a lot of the big things, which is how do you implement your philosophy? And I don't think that people realize like trying to implement a philosophy is not just sitting players down and this is how we play. And this is what we do. It's basically, it's, it's essentially like a, honestly, it's very, in the way I've read about it and the way I look at it, it's very similar to like a natural selection thing. If you just throw players into the deep end and say, this is what we do. and This is how we do it. They're not going to do it because they're just, it's just too much of an overload situation that it's very unlikely that they're going to have any type of an adaption to that overload. So you have yeah. to make incremental improvements, right? Incremental changes over time that create overload environments where the only reaction I can do is to respond to the overload. So I overcome the overload of the change. When I say overload for listeners, overload simply just means that, right, this is a, we're going to get through a concept of uh, exploiting numerical advantage Um or numerical superiority in the midfield. Right. So you just, you, you basically have to create a, a number of tactical sessions that progressively create a new situation, right. Where there's an overload being created, which is if the overload means if you do not do this, you're going to fail. It creates an environment where the only option is to do what you're being asked. Right. And you're going to basically build upon that with each additional day and training session. So yeah. And the idea is you want to get this to an, a level of optimization so that players don't have to consciously always filter information with their teammates and their opponents in the space in the field. They can start to more effortly look at what's important and what's not within the overarching team level intention and how their individual tactical intention fits in with that team intention. And the problem with that is this, is, is that, so people say that he's had this team for seven months and you made a great, great point there about how, all the injuries and the new players. But then the flip side of that, too, is during the World Cup, go back and look at how many players were injured or at the World Cup. It takes almost most of the squad out immediately. So then of the players that were remaining, I think it was Jorginho ultimately left. So our best player during this period of, you know, he's got all this World Cup time to get his tactics in and get everybody to learn it and implement Well, he was doing it with a bunch of third string guys and backups and hardly any, if at all starters that were either healthy or still at Cobham, they were all gone or they were all hurt. They're not out there working with him. So he really had, he had his hands tied behind his back as far as it goes to getting any of this tactical implementation in. And then you're right, you're spot on with that, that, you know, you bring in, so many new players in January and the key with these new players is in January is these are not experienced players in their prime that have already won a lot. These are Mm -hmm. players that are young and they're still developing their own references within the game. And Potter has to teach them more references. So he's Mm -hmm. also working with people that inherently have a lower level of objective references because they just haven't played and experienced as much as, you know, bringing in like, per se, a Michael Bollock, like we did in the 2000s, right? Yeah. Those, so you make a great point with that. And I just wanted to touch upon that for a second. I think that that is such an underrated point to the entire discussion in the fan base around Potter. And you try to explain to people that, and they just still say, well, seven months, seven months, seven months. And it's like, okay, you know, I understand what a time sequence is. I'm not, I can look at a calendar let's look at what happened in that calendar and not just throw out dates, you know? And so that, that's a very good point that I take a lot of exception with when I hear people argue against what you were saying.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, and I don't think this has been talked about much, but I've done a bit of research on this. Uh Chelsea played have played about, I think 130 odd games in the last two years. That's and, unreal. Like, and Liverpool have played about the same. Um, now, what's the, what what? Are, Liverpool and Chelsea are both having really off seasons this season, right? Some of their players look tired. Some of the players look exhausted. Mason Mount, prime example of this, played probably played more games than any other Chelsea player in the last two years. He's exhausted. He's burnt out, right? And he's played two international tournaments as well, um, and barely had a rest. Uh, and then, I mean, even Manchester City have played a lot of games. They had a period where they struggled yep. as well. Who's been their best player this season? Somebody that wasn't at the club for the last two seasons, right? Um, Erling Haaland, right? And, um, you know, they're still, I mean, because they've got so, so much quality and so much depth and such a great mentality, that an experience, they've been able to deal with it. But um, Liverpool have struggled. We have struggled. The teams that are doing well this season... Man United, Arsenal, you know, for example, played have played about a season's less fixtures in the last two years. So of course they're going to have more energy. Of course they're going to look better. And and you know I think you know I think the burnout thing is real. Like Chelsea and Liverpool especially have suffered from this because they they played so many games that um, of course you're going to have a ton of injuries. Liverpool had a ton of injuries last season, right? Um and I mean Liverpool play a high intense kind of football anyway, right? Yes. Yet alone the number of games they play. So so yes. I can see why they're struggling this season, right? And the same with Chelsea. So I, I think regardless of who the manager was, I don't think this season would have been a great season anyway. Um because a lot of the players that are already here are burnt out and the new ones are just adapting. You know, and there's been a lot of change at the club because it's this season was going to be a bit unstable because there's so much change going on at the club. A lot of people are leaving. A lot of people are coming in. A lot of changes in the structure. A lot of changes in scouting and data and, and business and everything. Is going the whole club
0: the, has changed. The entire club.
1: Yeah. I, I, and as I've said on Twitter is we are basically building a football club from scratch, right? Because, like, and this is, you know, not to have a go at the previous regime because we won everything under Roman Abramovich, but especially towards the end of that, there was a lack of football strategy. There was a lack of structure. The scouting wasn't great. The recruitment was, a, was awful. Oh, it was um, There was no plan. And in terms of business, we underachieved as well. We didn't maximize our earning potential. Um, and so when they came in, they got rid of the old guard pretty quickly because they wanted to build a football club from scratch. They wanted to build an infrastructure scouting data um recruitment you know top level staff in all positions um and have a coach that would oversee that graham potter i mean ben Jacobs referred to this in one of his articles recently graham potter is part of that he is part of building the structure of the club and the infrastructure and the you know he is part of i mean he's part of the business plan you know he's not just involved in the coaching he's involved in other things as well and that's one of the reasons they hired him um they basically want to build a structure like Brighton have at an elite level um to the point where even if the head coach changes there's not there's no disruption because somebody else comes in with a similar philosophy and just takes takes it on like has happened at Brighton this season. you know there's been no real transitional period, no disruption with the Zerbi coming in they've just taken it on to another level um and that's that's what I don't think people quite understand, I think there's this kind of mythology I think around that. You know, Chelsea have been a, just, uh, Chelsea have been a serious club recently because we won the Champions League in 2021, um, and you know, respectfully, I don't agree with that. <laughs> yeah. um, we won that top Champions League partly because what um, Gagliante was playing absolutely Ballon d'Or level quality in that Champions League. Um and because we had Thomas Tuchel, who is a top coach. No one, no doubt about that. Who was at the peak of his powers. Um and then kind of new manager bounce where all everyone was behind him. Everything was positive. We had some momentum. Uh, and it's a great achievement that Champions League. But it wasn't reflective of where we were as a team. That that season we very nearly finished fifth in the league, even under Tuchel. Yep. If Tottenham hadn't hadn't beaten Leicester on that last in that last game, he would have finished fifth, right? And uh, even with Suko coming in, so you know we've 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 scraped top four I think four times out of the last six seasons, and the other two seasons we didn't get in the top four, including this season. We're not going to get in the top four this season, and you know we 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 haven't challenged for the league in those six seasons at all. We've been twenty mm-hmm. points behind minimum.
0: We, yeah not... our average is like twenty three points off the yeah, title in the last exactly. five years just
1: see there'll be even more right and uh it's just you know we we haven't um you know we it's just that's not what a serious club does serious clubs challenge for the league almost every season right they're within five or ten points of the of the, of the title winners every season and,
0: and I completely understand that things go in cyclical ways right so you might yeah, you
1: they might challenge they for... do yeah that's, that's but... normal football, but the reality me, is, we haven't been up there yeah. in that in that conversation for the title since Con- since Conte's first season. Yep, that, that's the reality.
0: The last five so, years, it's like over a hundred and ten points combined that we've lost the title by. That's not that's not cyclical. That's that's endemic of something much worse.
1: Yes, exactly. And so, and the only way to get back there is to look at the models of teams that are doing it and copy that. And that's what Todd Bowley and Clear Lake are doing. They've looked at Manchester City, they've looked at Liverpool, and they've thought, right, okay, we need a world-class footballing structure. We need a world-class um, scouting, data, recruitment network with, with best-in-class people. We need um, a coach who is able to build and develop a team and has a long-term perspective and is willing to use the academy because you've got a great academy um and um we need to build an entire infrastructure at the club that will then run smoothly once that is all in place and that's how you get back to winning premier leagues and champions leagues and doing it every single season not winning it one year and then being rubbish the next season you know um and that's what they're trying to do but it takes time to get there or take a couple of years to get there if not more so um, that, because that's how modern football is. The way that we used to do things doesn't doesn't work in modern football now. It doesn't. Not in the Premier League. You know, um, you want to win the Premier League, you've got to be, you've got to have a good structure. You know, like yeah. look at Brentford and Brighton. They're two brilliantly run football clubs. They have great structure, great scouting, data analysis, recruitment, everything. Right, and they're being successful because of that.
0: They were quite revolutionary with a lot of their footballing structures and how they went about things.
1: Yeah, exactly. And Chelsea are copying them. Like, I think Bela de Barley said at a conference, Brighton are one of the best-run clubs in the Premier League. That's why they like Brighton so much, because they're so well-run.
0: They, yeah, <laughs> they don't like Brighton because they're mid-table. That's not why they bought a $4 billion investment to make it mid-table. And a lot of the suggestions that, well, you know, why are we trying to be like Brighton, blah, blah, blah. Well, we're not like Brighton. Because if we were like Brighton, we would get rid of, like, you know, of our finances and work with what's left, like what they do, right? They work with a lot less financial sums than what we work with for transfers, Mm -hmm. managers, whatever it might be, sporting directors. And and I had this conversation uh, with uh, with some of my co-hosts, Jordan Cohen, I think Tyler Wickham as well was having this with me, but we were talking about how at the end of the day, we probably hired people that are similar right and and in terms of how brighton ran things we're hiring folks that were basically like from red bull and from and and brighton and the club is what i think they're doing is saying okay right you used to work at this club and we, we really like what they did with their recruitment structures or their footballing directors or whatever it might be with a board and backroom staff for kind of the higher ups in terms of the footballing structure But what I think they're doing now is saying, okay, yeah, that's how it worked there, and it worked really well. Okay, so do the same thing, but here's five times the money to do it. Go make it happen. You have more resources, so you should basically get a higher quality version of what you were already doing at a club that had a high quality return on investment. So I I, I just – I I think you're making a lot of really good points here about how the fan base particularly is still stuck in the – Let's just keep repeating the past. Let's keep on the same wheel. You know, you're metaphorically at that point, just a hamster on a wheel running and running and not knowing what direction you're doing. But yet, you know, you're repeating what you did before. And what I always say from that is, right, if you, there are two there are a lot of ways to look at this, um, you know, like just in globally, right? In your own life, I think as anybody in general, if you were to always live in the past and be stuck there, then you're exactly that you're stuck in the past. And it's, it's a good place to learn from. It's not a great place to live. And I think on ultimately, if you're not trying to use the past as a, as a way to reflect and theorize and improve, then you're not, you're just, you're just repeating the same thing and you're never evolving. And if you're never evolving, how are you ever reacting to new situations? If you're not interacting and you're not evolving. And so that's, I think that as the fan base, we're in an interesting time now where the truth is that we need to evolve and we need to change, but we still always want to harken back to the way things used to be and only look at the positives instead of looking at the full picture. It's a man. I, I'm, you know, like thinking about it, like a literature standpoint, it's almost like the picture of Dorian Gray where you think it's so great, but you start looking more and more closely and it's, There's not nothing, there's nothing, there's not nothing but greatness on the picture. There are bad spots. And I think that you pointed it out where we win the league and then we just go bust. And we win the league and we go bust. And we win the Champions League and we go bust. And we barely scrap top four. Well, what are we doing? (laughs) You hit so many great points. Like, we're not doing a lot of the things that these other clubs are doing. And we've been left behind because of that. But yet, we still have a lot of fans that want the club to be left behind and to be stuck in the past and only look at the good and ignore the negative and use that as the basically the rallying cry for why bully and company are idiots and, you know, not as good as Roman and so on and so forth. And yeah, yeah, I'll stop there because I'm getting a little off tangent now, but that's a very, very poignant discussion that you just brought up.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think it's important to note here as well, with something I said to you before we start recording that, the last Chelsea manager to serve four years at Chelsea Football Club, four complete seasons, was John Neal in the early nineteen eighties. That's forty years ago. Jeez. Chelsea fans are not used to having managers that serve long periods at the club. Even older fans are not used to it. Um, you know, we are used to changing managers every two, every couple, two or three years, every time something gets difficult. Even before Roman Abramovich, that was a thing. Um, so. And funnily enough, the only manager, one of the only managers that lasted three seasons, the last manager to really begin a project at Chelsea, um, was Glenn Hoddle. Yes. And halfway through his first season, Chelsea were one point, were one place off bottom, and Chelsea fans wanted Glenn Hoddle gone, uh, and they wanted him to stop playing this football that he was trying to play and play, you know, survival football. And he, and Glenn Hoddle said in this documentary, he said. I will not play survival football. And what happened is they ended up finishing mid-table. They saved themselves from relegation. And they got to the FA Cup final, which they lost, you know, 4-0. But he got them into the Cup Winners' Cup. Yes. And that took Chelsea on, you know. and
0: in there was, was a big season, point for the club in their history.
1: Yeah. And in the third season, he signed Ruhollit, he signed Mark Hughes, signed Dan Petrescu and we played there there were there were periods in that season where we played some incredible football um people need to go and watch that 5-0 win against Middlesbrough that season because that is some of the best football i've ever seen Chelsea play any Chelsea team you know this is before pep guardiola like this was it was it was fluid football it was you know and it it was at the center of it he was unbelievable and so, like people talk about you know, midfielders, like playmakers or whatever, but Ruth that season and in that game, just something else. Like um you know, uh just out of this world really. Um and but it's because they, they gave Glenn Hall time to build that. And then he laid foundations which then Ruth kind of built on and win won the FA Cup. And then Biardi came in and then he won five trophies. And all that laid the lot, kind of Laid, laid the groundwork for Chelsea to be a club that was capable of getting into the Champions League and then therefore attractive to Roman Abramovich so you know it all started there and and you know if we'd sacked Glenn Hoddle after six months and gone back to survival football maybe that wouldn't have happened um you know I mean Glenn Hoddle didn't win anything at Chelsea but you know his work at Chelsea was really really important and I and, I do kind of feel like Graham Potter is doing something similar, but I do think that he, but I think he has a better chance of actually winning things. And yeah, and I, 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 there are some parallels with Graham Potter. Um, Graham Potter is coming in to change the philosophy and the culture of the club. He's coming in to lay foundations in terms of building a new team, in terms of building a culture, in terms of building an infrastructure, in terms of, you know. Changing, changing things at the club. Um, Graham, um, Glenn Hoddle did this. He changed diet. He changed training. He helped improve the training ground. I remember um, he did a lot of he made a lot of changes at the club, which you know uh, behind the scenes, not just in terms of on the pitch. Um, and I think Graham Potter is doing a lot of the same things now. Obviously, he's got a better squad to work with than Glenn Hoddle had. He's got a bigger budget to work with with Glenn Hoddlehead and a much better academy, you know, um, one of the best academies in Europe. So um, I think whatever happens with Graham Potter in the long term, whether he's the man to win the trophies or not, I think if he's here for a couple, even just a couple of years, I think he can put things, help put things in place Behind the scenes, and in terms of player development and squad development and infrastructure and like development of, of a team um, that will lay us in, will put us in good stead for the future. Um, and you know, maybe in maybe history, look, we'll look back and and see this because I think history's been kind to Glenn Hoddle at Chelsea, um, and I think it will be it will be the same for Potter. I actually hope that he that he has some success and that he wins some trophies at Chelsea. I don't think that's out of the question, no matter what other people say. Um, I think we can do it next season.
0: season. Yeah. We can I still do I it can... this season. We can maybe do the impossible uh, like we do I every mean, time.
1: You know, the fun that I would have if if, played, if if we won the Champions League, you know, I will be com- as smug as hell if We win the Champions League. I will so,
0: be insufferable on
1: Twitter. Yeah, I, everyone's gonna hate me if I like, yeah. like I'm gonna find all the old tweets and stuff and get them out. Like we got receipts, you know. If that happens, you know, <laughs> like you never know with Chelsea, you never know with Chelsea, especially no. if thinking Gala Kante is back, you know. So um if he comes back in the form he was in. A couple of years ago, well again with Enzo Fernandez next to him, you know, oh, oh, oh. you know, that's nothing it's not impossible. So um and then Thiago Silva comes back as well, you know, which he will. Um so it's not impossible. But um if he did that that would be I think given the draw that we have by the way, um Real Madrid followed by one of Bayern or Manchester City, followed probably by Napoli I would suspect. That that is one of the toughest runs that a team can can have in the Champions League. Yeah. So to win the Champions League in that context, and given what's happened this season already, would be probably one of the biggest achievements of like you know the last few years at Chelsea. Because I mean, both Champions League we won a miracles were miracles in their own right. This would be a miracle again. So uh, yeah, I mean, it probably won't happen, but you never know. Um, but but yeah, I, I do think that if he's here next season, he will win a trophy. Like, probably maybe a league cup or a um, or Europa League or a you know, conference league. Um,
0: get that conference and, league,
1: yeah. I'd love to win the conference league purely because then we can say we've won every European competition, like, yeah. Like, like, and also because it's a great opportunity to play young players,
0: like, exactly. You play, exactly, that, exactly. You can play
1: that, that. You can play Santos, you can play Lewis Hall, you can play Levi Colwell, you can play. Um, you can play all the like the younger, less experienced players who are still talented, and give them legitimate minutes and give them European experience, and you can still play some first team players, but it also means the first team players are fresher for the Premier League games, which means you probably do better in the Premier League, right? So um, the Arsenal,
0: like the Conte effect. Look at Arsenal this season; it has a real effect.
1: It does. So I, you know, you just don't know what could happen, you know. So, um. You know, so I think he'll have a good season next season. Um, the thing, that, the thing that the thing that the interesting thing about 2024 summer is that the England job will come up this that's in, in after the Euros. So, um, and if grandpa Potter's had a good season at Chelsea, he will be one of the favorites for that job, and certainly they will try, they will they, will, they may approach him. So, um, that would be a very interesting situation, you know, um, because if they want him to leave, it's an easy out for them, <laughs> whereas He's if they left. want him to stay it's a good negotiating chip for him to get a new contract. So um, that's going to be an interesting situation. And Of course, he may not be able to turn down the England job because you only get offered that once maybe in your career. So so that'll be a whole interesting situation, you know, but that's the future. Um, I think he'll be here next season. And I think uh, he will, his job is to build the infrastructure, to build a team, develop a culture, and all of those kind of things that we haven't had at the club, and that leg- that will be his legacy, I think. Um, and to leave that in place for somebody else to come in, great, you know. Um, and if it's him that gets the success and gets the trophies, great. I'm, you know, I'm not emotionally tied to Graham Potter or to any manager really. So, um, but I don't think I think Graham Potter will end up being an important figure in Chelsea's history, uh, in the future, um, whatever he whatever he achieves in terms of on the pitch, I think that his work off the pitch is is really really important and and will help us in the long term.
0: Yeah, and, and I think you're right on that. And there's a lot of good parallels that you drew between you know Glenn Hoddle and Graham Potter, and I think that it really gets into this idea of you know in the '90s it was a much different situation with 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 Hoddle and what he came into than what we are today, right? As it, Obviously in the 90s, it went from facing potential, you know, in the late, as far as I understand, like it was one of those situations where the club was facing financial ruin um, and not really a club that was competing for a lot of titles. And then, you know, he comes in and kind of reverses course. And you look at how we brought in Graham Potter, the new club. It's It, it is a new club. Like, let's not fool ourselves. It is still Chelsea Football Club in name. And the supporters trust is still there. And the pitch owners group is still there and all of that. But this is a new club. Everybody from the top down is pretty much new. There's some con- continuity with playing staff, which is still, that's so far down the pyramid that it's hard to say that's such an important piece. It's really about the people that are top down. It's more important because that's what ultimately drives the club. It's not the players. It's the top down structure is what's going to drive this, drive this club forward. And I think that if we were to have, which we are, we actually, I think that you're very, very poignant to, po- to to point out the similarities and parallels between the two situations. Because ultimately, I think that if we were to look at fan base, the fan base itself, and, and over our overall expectations, right? The expectations are never going to be in line with a guy who is here to build foundations. It's only going to be in line with a guy who's here to win now. Win, 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 right? Because we won the Champions League two years ago, so why can't we win it every year for the next ten years? Right? Because we won it one time, why don't we just keep winning it? You know, I I, I hate to get into those types of reductive arguments, but because they're very, very common in the fan base that you know what you did in the past is what you should be doing in the present. Well, if that's the case, then why are we all not still five years old? Right? Like it's just such a ridiculous argument. We all age, we all change. Things change, players change, coaches change, clubs change. Situations change and expectations change. But in the fan base, the expectations don't really seem to change in this club, despite the fact that everything else is changing. So I, I think with Graham Potter, we've talked about what he might need to do. Can he ever like prevent this opening wound situation? We've talked about the parallels between him and the past and how it really does seem that he's in that critical hinge point moment where he has to build he has to build something not just win something and I think honestly I think at times building things is almost building it to completion is almost as hard as winning things and I say that because imagine you're taking over a team that's going to be tasked with a completely new overhaul. That overhaul is going to have so many different problems and obstacles and and speed bumps along the way that make you change the objective you've planned and how you're going to go about achieving that objective. Not to say that whenever you're trying to win a title, you're not doing that, but when you're constantly trying to have to shift the foundations to even get to success, I think that's almost maybe in some ways just as difficult, if not more difficult than just trying to win a singular piece of metal that people will remember you for winning this year. And then they'll forget the next year because they expect more. And they expect more and they expect more. So I think this really gets gets us to a point where we talk about the fan base in general now, and just this instant gratification culture. Whenever we made the appointment for Graham Potter, I never had the expectation that he comes in and wins. I had the expectation. Well, look at what just happened over the summer. Look at how Thomas Tuchel was doing everything. And what do you really expect? Because whenever I thought we fired Tuchel and we hired Potter, I thought this season was basically a punt where all we're doing is trying to build foundations. And that was, and and I took the Tuchel sacking very, very hard. You probably remember those discussions that we had.
1: I do. I remember. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I took it very, very badly and it took me a month or two to really start to see the light and why we made the change. And ultimately I did, but given where we were and where we and where what we did and the actions we made, I just never saw this being as Potter was brought in to win now, but I still think the remnants of the past culture have a lot of the fans with those expectations that he was brought in to win now. Um, So I, I just don't see that. I don't think that was ever the expectation, but yet the fan culture is always, I think because of the past, the past 20 years, it was the culture. So now the fan culture has become by extension, Win now, and if you don't win, you suck, and you're not a Chelsea manager. You're some you know, mid-table failure, which I just think that's so far from the mark. There's so much; it's just not such an absolute game in football. It's a lot about relativity. So interested to hear maybe what you think about that and where you think that kind of the fan expectation, the culture is, and how that relates to Potter.
1: Yeah, and and I think this comes down to how Chelsea have been run and. Like I said, we haven't had a manager that's been here four years since the 1980s. And, you know, um, Ruud Hulet was in charge for 18 months, won the FA Cup. He wasn't set for results. It was a contract dispute. You know, Viali, two and a half years, won five trophies, challenged for the title. He won the Champions League. Um, you know, we started the season poorly and he ended up leaving. Um, Pedro anieri did three and a half, nearly four seasons, um, and he gets a lot of criticism from some fans. But I, I appreciated him for basically he did a job similar to what Graham Potter is doing now, because he came in and he had a bunch of a, a bunch of thirty-year-olds who was coming to the end of the, coming to the end. Now that there was a great team that had won loads of things, but they were getting you know past their best. And the team needed to be rebuilt, right? And you know Frank LeBeuf, Gus Poyer, you know um, Dennis Wise, you know people like this all had to all had to be moved on. Even though they were Chelsea legends, it was their time to move on. And you know Raniery brought in Frank Lampard, you know, which turned out to be a really good, <laughs> a really good signing. Um, he he gave John Terry his debut. Um, he brought in William Gallas, you know. And this is before Abramovich as well. This is before Abramovich. And you know, over those three seasons, Chelsea got to a cup final, they got to a cup semi-final. Um, and you know, I think the foundations are being laid. You know, we we didn't have an in, in his last in his second season, second full season, we didn't buy anyone because we had no money. And actually we ended up having a really good season and finishing fourth. Um you know, and he was lucky to have Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank in that team as well, but he got a chance to lay some foundations. Like, you know, Mourinho came in after after Renieri had laid foundations, right? Rennier was probably not the guy that was going to win all the trophies, but he did a great job laying foundations, and, and Mourinho absolutely built on that, and, you know, that was the greatest Chelsea team of all time. Um... He was the longest-serving manager under Abramovich, that Mourinho first spell, and also the most successful, which is not a coincidence, I don't think. Um, but so Chelsea, for the point is that Chelsea fans are used to managers changing regularly, right? And they're not, they're not. They're, there's never really been a project at Chelsea in the modern era, really. Like Glenn, Glenn Hoddle was a project, but Chelsea weren't you know, they didn't have the budget or the players of an elite club at that point. Um, So Chelsea used to, like, you win now or you get sacked. Like, we have to win something this season and if we're not looking like winning something this season, we have to sack the manager so that we can. It's all about now. Like, winning stuff now. And, like, there's nothing wrong with winning trophies. Like, I want to win trophies. But you can't build a football club that way. You can't do that, like, and I'm not comparing Graham Potter with Alex Ferguson, but Alex Ferguson was three years at Manchester United, he won nothing, nothing, right? They were involved in a relegation battle as well. Um, you know, there were banners at the stadium saying, Get rid of him, he's not good enough. You know, we've had enough, three years of excuses, and he's still rubbish. We're, it wasn't rubbish, it was a different word, but I'm not going to say it on a podcast. Um, <laughs> and like, this is Alex Ferguson, right? And um, but they they stuck with him, he turned it around, and they won the FA Cup in his fourth season. And they never looked back, you know. And and again, he was a manager that didn't just do the first team, he built a structure at the club. He he he, he put emphasis on let's make the academy strong, let's get our scouting sorted. Let's build a good structure. Let's get rid of the drinking culture at the club. Let's get rid yep. of all he did. All of that that was just as important as the on-field stuff. And if you read his autobiography, it's fascinating. You know, Man United was a mess behind the scenes, it wasn't just the players, and he built the club, and you know, that in... and he built that infrastructure which just absolutely dominated for two decades, right? And um, you know, and what we're trying to build now is a kind of a modern version of a like Graham Potter is kind of a modern version of an old star manager, where he's not just building the team; he's helping to build the club with the help of our directors of football, our scouts, our global directors, all those kind of all those people that we've we've recruited. He's working with them and with and with the ownership to to build that, so that eventually you have what you have with the Dodgers. You have this infrastructure which just Churns out results. Yep. And like, and every t- year.
0: Top talent every single year.
1: Every year. Like, imagine if we have all these top talent at and- other clubs, which we bought for peanuts, and then we get those players to Chelsea for peanuts. And like, so we buy Enzo Fernandez instead of Benfica buying Enzo Fernandez for 15 million, we buy him for 15 million, loan him out to a club to develop, and then bring him in. And we've got a player like Enzo Fernandez for 15 million. That's what they want to do. That's the plan, right? So we don't have to spend big on players because we get the best players before they become names, like Brighton do, except instead of selling them like Brighton do, we keep them. <laughs>
0: like, exactly.
1: That's the plan. That's that's literally what they're doing. It's like a big budget and- of Brighton. Like if Brighton had money and didn't need to sell their players, this is what they would be, right? And, like, uh, and I, can, I saw this right from the beginning. Like oh, I'm kind of a big picture guy, so I always see this stuff. And like and granted, most people are not big picture people.
0: No, they're not all they're all about people. next weekend and that's it.
1: Yeah, and I get that. I totally get that. So I don't have any kind of resentment to fans for not getting that. But that is that's why I'm behind Potter and this project, because I can see what they're trying to do and where this is gonna go. And it's gonna and like I, I did actually I send you a list of the players that we've signed and how old they're gonna be in five years.
0: Oh, it's glorious! And it
1: was like, my <laughs> word, we're gonna have such a great team in five years. Like, we're gonna have a super team in five years, and we'll have bought them all for peanuts. Like, it's you know, like Santa. I mean, like this guy, Andre Santos, man. I, I He is gonna be a superstar. I'm absolutely convinced of it.
0: I know. I know. He's already you in the know, Brazil
1: first. He's already in the Brazil men's squad, and he's 18. He's 18.
0: And I know like, from talking with. uh Jessica Frota, who's a Brazilian supporter of the club. Um, you can find her on Twitter as well. Good follow. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she's talked to me about how like Santos is probably the second highest rated prospect behind Indric, um, who just went over to I think to he has, was it Real Madrid that he signed for? Yeah, Real Madrid, yeah. Yeah, which you know makes sense. They've kind of established the uh, you know raid raid Brazil policy it, you know, before they you you know, before they get past age 20 um uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah i mean we we have built something that is going in a direction that's long term it's not this you know smash and grab short term instant gratification we'll just go out there and buy you know xyz players who are in their prime and in 2 years they're going to be on the decline we're not doing that anymore we're we're i think of it as this we're not we're no longer buying we're investing and i think your comments about what we're doing with we're, we're getting these ridiculously talented players for what will ultimately become peanuts when they're, you know, more than likely they're going to they're going to be a higher value whenever we let go of them than what we purchased them for. But the, the the flip side is that's the floor. That's the bare minimum. The ceiling is that these are 100 150 million pound players and we bought them for 10 to 15, you know. Yeah, that's it. it. That's exactly it. It it it's a beautiful model but I think the beauty of that model is being lost upon a lot of folks because it's not getting instant results now, but it's like the whole Rome was not built in a day concept. So to, to expect the club to not only change from the owner all the way down to like the medical staff for, to expect them to completely change and to do everything differently. And then to try to come somehow come back, And retain the aspects of the of the previous regime that were you know win 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 i I think there's just so much flux there's so much there's so many things that are in a state of flux with the team that it's just not realistic to achieve that goal but what you're saying is and i agree we're setting ourselves up to compete in the i don't want to say in the short term but in the more in in the this is going to sound really stupid to listeners this is Terrible phrase, but in the longer t- spell of the short term, so let's think like, I don't know, one to two years. I think there's a it lot of reason to, to believe in one to two years that we are a top, top team. And the thing is, we're still a top team. We're in the last eight of Europe. Just because we had one bad league campaign does not mean we're all of a sudden a terrible club. It just does not mean that. No. Um Yeah, so I, I just think that we, we're – and this is what I I get at a lot. I think that we're just going through growing pains and these growing pains are inevitable, but just as when you were a child and this, you know, to think as in a metaphor, we all had to go through growing pain pains when our bones were physically growing. Right. But had yep. we not, had, but we were better off in life for going through those pains than having never gone through them. Right. So yep. that, that maybe is a terrible analogy, but that's the best one I'm coming up with at the moment.
1: <laughs> um <laughs>
0: But, you know, I just think that at the end of the day, like we, you know, we're trying to change who we are. We're trying to have a new structure, new managers, new players, new this, new that, new blah, 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 everything. And it's just such a difficult, for me, even as a fan, I just don't even think it's in, it's it's genuine for me to expect Potter to be Thomas Tuchel and to repeat a Champions League or to repeat this or that. Um, I don't think that's a fair conversation to have because the circumstances are completely different. Uh, to where they were, you know, two years ago. Um, yeah. yeah, so I th- do you think, like, the fan expectations, do you think it just takes time for these expectations yeah. to be changed? Or do you think that people just, you know, death rattle, grip on to the old expectations until somebody pries it from their cold dead hands kind of situation?
1: Yeah, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think as people start, to, as, as we start to improve on the pitch, which we will, like, I, I don't doubt at all, we will. Um, next season especially, we will. Uh, people will start to understand. And when the players that we brought in, the younger players, they start to see them in the team, even if it's in the Conference League or League Cup or whatever, and they start to see how good some of these young players are, and they're still teenagers, some of them, That, then you can start to see, ah, oh, there's a plan. There's some, there might be some... You know, Levi Colwell will hopefully be in the squad next season. Like, I think he'll end up playing in the league because he's that good. But him coming into the team, maybe becoming a regular, you know, at some point will be a, a positive sign. You know, and little things like that that the fans can grab hold of um, will help. But I still think, like, ultimately, I have this feeling we're not going to, people are not going to acknowledge what's going, what's going on. Until we win the first trophy, right? Yep. Um, that's that's my honest
0: opinion too, is I think it just takes literally Potter holding up a shiny piece of metal for somebody to change their mind.
1: Yeah, and that's unfortunately football because fans it is think with their emotions and um and
0: that's and not to say results don't matter because just- they do matter, but it's just that there's so few things that we know about from the club right now as fans. At least I don't know this stuff. But like, I just don't know if the club is looking purely at results right now and trophies as the measurement stick for Potter. And as a fan, I'm trying to do that as well.
1: Yeah, and I think that's right. I think I, I read, again, this article by Ben Jacobs that was interesting because he said that one of the reasons that Potter kept his job was because of the work he's doing behind the scenes.
0: Which we never of, see. We never see. We don't see.
1: Yeah, the stuff in terms of infrastructure, in terms of facilities, in terms of um, you know, all that kind of thing, recruitment. Um, and I mean, he's—I think he mentioned to the club that you know your tra- your medical facilities are worse than Brighton's, like, and so they've taken action on that, right? And so he's given them lots of stuff that they can use to improve our medical facilities, to improve our training facilities, you know, all of that, um, to update Cobham. So That's it. and that's going to be important to Chelsea for the next 10 years, you know. Yeah, um,
0: you know, these are foundations, quite literally, because
1: yeah, yeah, we, we can cut out the injuries like you know, whatever's causing those injuries, then we won't have those issues and we'll be much stronger. Because, yep, I you know, and they have, and again, they've been really, really thorough in investigating what has caused the
0: injuries. Like, and, and look at like, how he's, he's already handled Rhys James. Look at how he's already handled him and said, no, yes, I'm not, I'm not exactly. going to play him.
1: Exactly. And I think players respect him for that. Apparently,
0: one on of the things
1: that Tante has decided that he wants to stay is because he's seen what Graham Potter has done with injured players, that he's given them time to recover, that he's not played them. If there's any question over their fitness, even if it means, even if it means risking his job. Right, that that game he's he playing, he's from...
0: managing the person over the player.
1: Yes, and I think apparently, and apparently, that's played a played a part in N'Golo Kante deciding to stay because he wants a manager that is going to care for him as a as a man, like and his health, which more than he's not just going to play him to save his job.
0: When gonna... Maurizio Sari never did those things, which made Kante very disillusioned with the club itself
1: yeah exactly um and tuchel i mean even took i mean even tuchel overplayed him a problem oh game. absolutely and yeah you know, i mean it's easy to it's an easy temptation but potter is like no i'm going to prioritize a player's health and their well-being and their long-term good over short-term results yes and I want that, that's good i want a manager to do that because ultimately in the long run you win their loyalty you win their trust so they're right behind you and you probably get more out of them as a player in the long run, you know. I think when Cantor comes back on the pot, he's going to be playing it, playing his heart out for him because yep. of the way that he's slowly bringing him back. He didn't bring him on against Everton; big, big temptation, temptation to, but he didn't bring him on. He brought Gallagher on, and that was again. It was like I'm not going to, I'm not just going to bring you in to save my skin or whatever or protect protect the lead. I'm going to bring you back when you're ready, like and when it's good for you, not when it's good for for the team. And that's, 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 that's really positive. That's, I think that things like that are one reason that the players are all behind him. Exactly. He actually treats them as human beings, not just as like commodities, like you're just players who... They're not just
0: means to the end of results anymore. They are human beings that if I manage this person properly in the long term, I'm going to be better off for it as opposed to just prioritizing the short term. And then in the long term, I'm without this player that I prioritize in the short term because I couldn't look past my own nose.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think players with and he's got yeah, you know, he's got that masters in emotional intelligence. And um you can see, you can see it. You can absolutely tell. Like that that is um I think he's a great man manager. I, I really do. And if he can if he can improve as a coach and a tactician, which I think he can because he's always he's the kind of person that's always wanting to learn and improve, and he can take that to the next level. Then we'll have a really good manager, like who could be at Chelsea for a long time and maybe win things. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have another change of manager and we ended up Graham Potter ended up proving everyone wrong and winning the Premier League and winning the Champions League and being our long-term manager? I mean, yeah. like without having to change managers again.
0: Because if we change managers now and we go to somebody else, and in twelve months it all goes to crap and we never won anything, then why did we ever change anyway?
1: Yeah, exactly. There's no like,
0: there's no guarantee changing managers brings results. There's no guarantee at all. No,
1: there isn't exactly right. You know, um, it's not this. It's not the magic bullet everyone thinks it is. You know, it's. I wrote an article about that today. Like, it, it's not. It's not that just get this like instant guarantee of. Suddenly everything's going to be okay. Oh, and this time it'll be the long-term guy, right? Because that's what often people will, I see on Twitter is like, "Oh, I want a long-term manager," but then when they get a long-term manager in and they have to go through the growing pains, like, they oh, don't no, want it. Not this one. Then the next one.
0: You the know? next world-class guy who tends to be short-term. <laughs>
1: yeah, like, exactly. It's just like it's like a it's like a loop, you know. It like, is the one people want. People want the, uh, the the results of the long-term stuff without the work of having what it takes to get there because long-term stuff is not just on the pitch. It's off the pitch and it's stuff that you don't see but but with stuff which is equally as important as the on-pitch stuff because it affects the on-pitch stuff because it's like this is the holistic approach that we're trying to put in place.
0: Which we uh, never did before. We never had that approach before and it, and it shows. It shows just by our actions let alone what happened in the last five years
1: yeah exactly exactly so you know all in all i'm i'm still very positive and i'm i'm you know i'm 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 encouraged that the ownership want to back graham potter and see him as part of a bigger plan not just on the pitch but off the pitch and that he'll be given a chance to prove himself you know and You know, I think you know. I think hopefully we'll finish the season well. Maybe we can get to the semi-finals of the Champions League, and that'd be a great achievement. I mean, if we beat Real Madrid, we knock out Real Madrid. That's a great achievement for Graham Potter in itself. It is. So, um, and that alone should earn him next season because it's that's going to be a very difficult tie. So, um, but I'm yeah, I'm, I'm positive. You know, and yes, I want results to be better and performances to be more consistent and but I think they can be. And I think one part of the reason for that is that the players are all behind Graham Potter and they want this to succeed. And we have a lot of talent. So um, just keep going and hopefully we'll uh, we'll get there.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'm right there with you that I think, you know, things can improve. Let's not, I'm not trying to be, for any listeners out there, the person that thinks that where we are and what we're doing is completely fine and there's no reason to worry and this and that. There are, there are, right? Right? We don't want to see this team in 10th place next season. But at the same time, (laughs) that's not what anybody is saying, right? When we say give it time, that's not what we're suggesting. We're suggesting that time and continuity and more just implementation, and not just with the manager, but with the footballing structure above him, is going to breed results. And that's just, there is no way for us to make that an instantaneous process. They're just... Quite frankly, is not. I mean, look it, it it just isn't. And and if you want to show me an example of it, I think the closest thing you could probably point to in the Premier League recently was the appointment of Pep Guardiola and how he came in and changed a lot of Man City within a year. And I remember distinctly when he was fourth place in England, well, this guy's overrated, he can't do the Premier League, he can only do it in you know duopoly or monopoly type leagues, blah 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 blah. And then he comes back the next season and puts together an incredible league season, and goes on the next several years to just be a two, you know, a two team a race every single season. I'm not saying Potter is on Pep's level because I understand there's this unproven aspect, which I've already given my thoughts on. You know, being unproven, you're unproven until you all of a sudden you're proven. So I think that's a little everybody's unproven until the point that they're all of a sudden become proven with whatever result or trophy they achieve, whatever it might be. But the point I'm trying to get at here is there's just going to be time. And I think you say that so well, you know, give this time, give this continuity and let's see where this can go. And then, and then I think by giving it time and continuity, and if we breed good results next season, people will start to change their expectations quickly because they'll realize, Oh, we can give people time. And it will eventually work out instead of having to make a change immediately and hope that it then works out. I think that's the biggest thing for the fans expectations to be changed is just simply giving Potter time and having that time breed results. Otherwise there's no other real reference for many fans for how to achieve results. So I, I, I think that's a, a great, great point score. And, you know, just before we wrap up here, thanks, thanks so much for coming on. This was a great discussion and I, I've had a blast talking about this and uh, hope to get you back on some more um you know this has been a really really good discussion i like a lot of your historical perspective on things as well it's uh something i really really enjoy hearing so thanks so much for coming on um you know it, it's been a very very good discussion and episode so um yeah. you know hopefully we get you back on sometime soon so thanks again I, i'll i'll leave it yeah. there
1: for sure. thanks yeah but,
0: it's been
1: great to be here
0: and yeah i'm glad you had a good time and you know for anybody that's out there, you know, follow, find him on Twitter at, uh, you know, it's at the score zero yep. one. And you can, you know, once again, find, find his works at the Chelsea social with signed in talk CFC. Um, you can find his works there. So give him, definitely give some of his stuff a check. It's, it's, it's well worth the while. So until next time, keep the blue flag flying high.